Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. From Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of educational reading in the classroom. Each episode features one book or article, my reflections and the thoughts of my guests on its use and impact in the classroom. Some episodes may also feature an introduction from the author. Hi and welcome to the second episode of this season of From Page to Practice. I'm so pleased to be bringing you this episode today on the Michaela School book, The Power of Culture. I'm really grateful to Catherine and the other chapter authors from Michaela who have given up their time to contribute and of course to Gita from the Michaela School for coordinating all of these contributions. As per usual, after we've heard from those that wrote the book, we'll hear from a selection of readers with their thoughts on the book and their applications to their teaching practice. So we'll start with Catherine Burbal Singh about her chapter on servant leadership. Right, so I'm Catherine Birbel Singh, and um, I'm talking about leadership. I wrote about uh, servant leadership in our book, The Power of Culture. Um, and, well, culture, which I think is such an important part of leadership, because uh, you're, you're trying to shape the culture of your school. And in order to do that, you're looking at, at every detail. And, um, and you recognize that all of the details make up the whole. Um, so do you have a big staff room for the staff or do you have individual work rooms for different departments? Uh, do you have a weekly staff meeting, uh, or do you have one every half term? You know, my preference is to, uh, have people meeting regularly, uh, building a a sense of camaraderie and family, uh, so that people are supportive of each other. Um, but that, that's just... That's my way. It depends on different leaders, really, and and the culture that they want to create. Um, I think it's important to create a culture of consistency uh, where uh, teachers are delivering similar type lessons, not exactly the same, but similar, where they believe in similar ideas. Um, So for all of us here, we believe that the teacher should, uh, uh, Michaela, should stand at the front and uh, lead the children in their learning uh, we wouldn't have a mixture of traditional and progressive um, approaches. And I think that's important because children thrive in consistency and in in environments that are more predictable. And when I say predictable, you use the same merit and demerit system or point system or whatever it is for behavior. You expect the same types of behavior from children. It makes it much easier for them to behave overall, I'd say. And ultimately, I think that's the role of leadership to allow uh, teachers to be able to teach. Um, and, and, and you do that by bringing everybody together as a team and delivering something as a team. And so my chapter is about servant leadership. And, and essentially, what does that mean? Well, it means that you're, you're working for something bigger than yourself. And you, would, you put the school and its uh, requirements above your own requirements. And that isn't just the leader who does that, but everybody who is part of this um, mission, I suppose, to change the world for, for the children in our charge. Um, now, other things I talk about in that chapter, I talk about wasting time. So you don't want your staff wasting time. And I think one of the difficult things in leadership is making decisions that might not be what people want to hear. So sometimes a member of staff might ask me to uh, do a particular event or something fun. 
And then I think, well, you know, is that the right use of their time? And I might say no, um, because I'm thinking about the whole and how, how they use their time affects everybody in, in, in the team. Um, so that, I suppose, is connected to the idea of just having high standards and being clear on your vision. I know that in leadership, people often talk about, well, what's your vision? Um, and it's hard to explain exactly what that means and, and how powerful it is. If you don't have a clear vision and know what you want, and you might not want the same things as I do. You know, you might be a progressive, for instance, and you might love the idea of group work in lessons and you want group work happening in every lesson. Okay, great. But then make sure group work is happening in every lesson. And how are you going to make that happen? You've got to get everybody to buy into it. So you do have to be relatively inspiring in the things that you say, and you need to persuade people. And I think the same thing goes for uh, people, for teachers, as it does for children. You know, you need to narrate everything. You need to explain, and you need to try and persuade them. Because otherwise, they're going to do it because they have to do it, but they're not going to believe it. And then when you have your, your back turned, they'll do something else. So you need staff to believe in what you're about. Um, and you need the kids then to believe in what you're about. And of course, you depend on your staff to do most of that work with the kids. What I always say is that as a head teacher, you can't be there for 500 kids, 800 kids, 1500 kids. Uh, you need to depend on your staff. So I always say to the staff that I'm there for them and that they are there for the kids. And of course, ultimately, I am there for the kids, but I'm not doing it directly. I'm doing it via the staff. Um, and then the biggest thing, I think, is not to be envious of other schools and other people's situations. You know, we don't have any trees or grass or we don't even have a car park for the, for the teachers. And we don't have um, a sports hall for the kids. And I could spend all my time being miserable about the fact that the school down the road has all of that and much more and a brand new building and 30 million spent and so on. But... You know, that would just make me miserable. And you've always got to be on the positive side, working hard to, to make a difference to the kids. So uh, we always teach the children to be grateful for whatever it is you've got, however little it is. And I think that's the way to go in leadership is always be grateful for what you've got. It'll just make you into a happier person and make it far more likely that you'll succeed. So, um, so that's it, really. Uh, leadership is the most exciting um, well, I, I love it. I mean, when I say leadership, I was about to say the most exciting kind of position you can have, but and then I stopped myself because I thought, well, no, because teaching is leadership as well. And I think everybody in a school is leading in some kind of way. You either lead children or you lead the staff. Um, as a head of department, as an assistant head, you know, all of these roles uh, require leadership. And um, even just, you know, as a classroom teacher, because you're leading all those children. And um, and that's important. And um and and it's so it's such a privilege really to to be able to do that and to build trust with people so uh, i'm always grateful for people trusting me and believing in me and trusting me even when they're not quite sure of what i'm telling them uh they just believe it um because there's something bigger than them and and that's ultimately it it's what i said at the beginning you know we're all working for something bigger than us and uh we all feel a certain level of of gratitude for, for being allowed to do so. Thanks. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Next up, we're hearing from Head of French, Jane Briley. Hi, I'm Jane. I'm Head of French at Michaela. And in our book, The Power of Culture, I chose to write about silent corridors. Um, 
And Michaela's kind of famous for its silent corridors, I think probably because they're quite controversial. Um, a lot of people are actually horrified at the sound of them. Um, so the point of my chapter really was to show the world that our corridors are not only, you know, kind to the pupils and the staff that work here, um, in that they create a really nice school environment, but also that they are um, absolutely essential um, in the running of the school and the systems and the, restru- the structures that we have here. It just, the school wouldn't function without them. So, you know, how is that so? I'll, I'll explain, I'll break those points down. Um, well, the first reason our corridors are silent is a practical one. We have seven floors. Um, what are we on? Seven year groups now. So that's about 14 corridors and giant flights of stairs. Um, in order for the kids to get to their lessons on time, we just need absolute focus from them. Um, and in our experience as teachers and in Catherine's experience, you know, 20 years of teaching, um, we've, you know, come to the conclusion that it's not possible for pupils to focus when we're just asking them to be quiet or keep it down. I mean, it's very hard to ask pupils to just stay quiet because what does that even mean? Um, you know, how quiet? And one pupil's quiet is going to be different to another's. Um, so it's much easier for us to ask them to be silent. They actually are much happier with the idea of being asked to um, be silent because there's no shades of it. You're either silent or you're not. So it's something they can something they can succeed at, I suppose. Um, and to be honest, you know, I'm saying the corridors are silent. Actually, they're not <laughs> because the, they're, we've got teachers dutied on every stairwell and every corridor and you know they're there to say hello to the pupils and practice their greetings and our our pupils social skills and people skills are actually you know quite world famous we we get you know comments from guests saying how polite and um uh you know how just how lovely our pupils are to speak to that's because they get practice every single lesson transition you know sometimes if they're going up to the seventh floor they'll get seven opportunities to practice their greetings um you know and it's not just greetings that the teachers are, are practicing with the pupils they'll be making jokes they'll be checking how they are checking they know where they're going um you know sometimes we'll have singing we'll have chanting um and it is a really nice really nice environment um really friendly atmosphere you know and these transitions are actually only one tiny part of their day they've obviously got time before school they've got all of lunch they've got you know there's, there are loads of opportunities actually to you know have conversations with with um pairs in their lessons so and obviously after school so the only time we're actually enforcing that they're not speaking to one another is you know the point where they're going around the school and that is uh, mostly for a practical reason um the other reason is we can you know really be observing how you know how the pupils are interacting with one another and this can help us in you know getting rid of any bullying or nastiness that definitely um goes on in many schools around the country certainly ones that I've worked in um so I mean, the pupils, they, they buy into it because it feels like a much nicer nicer environment than ones they've had in the past where the bullies are in charge because now it's the adults who care about them that are in charge. Um, 
And yeah, we do give them detentions if they're talking to one another because they know the rules. But, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And if they actually didn't want to stay quiet, they wouldn't. But they, I suppose they understand the importance and the role they have to play in keeping our corridors so nice. Um, Otherwise, it would just be chaos. And they know deep down that they don't want that. So yes, the detentions are... You know, one system that helps us control behaviour in the corridors. But I think as much as anything, explaining the importance of the silence and getting the pupils brought in um, to that to that system, that's equally as important. So I think that's everything from me. Um, that's a bit of information about our corridors at Michaela and the systems that we have in place. Um, you can find much more detail in my chapter in The Power of Culture, and that chapter is called Silent Corridors. OK, thanks. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. The topic of silent corridors is really interesting, especially hearing how silent doesn't necessarily mean silent and the reasons behind this. Thank you, Jane. Next, we hear from Head of Science, Pritesh Raichura. Hello, my name is Pritesh Raichura and I'm the Head of Science at Michaela Community School. So I've contributed two chapters to our book, The Power of Culture. The first one is called The Transformative Power of Values and the second one is called Why Stormzy Could Never Replace Mozart. And it's that latter chapter and the idea of curriculum that I'm going to be talking about today. So to start off with, what isn't the curriculum at Michaela? Well, what we firmly believe is that the curriculum isn't a, a conduit to explore what people's existing interests are. The whole point of the curriculum that we offer, which is highly academic, um, we offer maths, English, language, English literature, history, geography, science, religion, art and music as part of our curriculum, in addition to sport. And we focus on these academic subjects um, because we believe that they will broaden their horizons. And we don't indulge them with knowledge that they already have. So in my chapter, I talk about how asking pupils what they would like included in the curriculum, what they would like to learn about, isn't something we would do. There is very limited curriculum time. There's only a a short amount of time that pupils have to engage with our disciplines, with our subjects, and as teachers, who have the authority to decide what we put in our curriculum, we, the experts, are the ones who decide because we have an overview of what's in our field, what's in our, within our discipline. And we choose the most powerful knowledge that those peoples could learn about that will force them to think about things and to encounter things that they wouldn't have ever encountered before. So, of course, in our music curriculum, we have Mozart, we have Bach, we have Tchaikovsky, because these are the composers and this is the kind of music that the pupils wouldn't choose to listen to otherwise. Whereas Stormzy and the, you know, music that's on the charts is something that they will encounter in their day-to-day life. So one of the key things we do is make sure we broaden their horizons and introduce them to the discipline that experts in the field would agree constitutes really powerful, really important knowledge. So a literature curriculum, for example, that didn't include Shakespeare, that didn't include Dickens, would 
you know, those are such profound contributions to the world of literature to sacrifice those and have something that the pupils might, in, you know, think, you know, that some teachers would argue is more relevant for the pupils, we would say, absolutely, that's not the case. Um, in fact, we would go as far as saying that it's almost patronizing to say that pupils in the inner city, pupils from ethnic minority backgrounds wouldn't engage with and wouldn't relate to the I profound ideas that are contained within Shakespeare's work. Because ultimately, classical music is beautiful. Shakespeare's work is beautiful. And that's something that experts within those respective fields would agree upon. And to suggest that our people should only be limited to the things that they already experience in their day-to-day -day life is to deny them the opportunity to participate in discussions about what literature is, what good music is, what uh, excellent art looks like. So, and that links nicely to one of the values of our school, which is that we believe in the authority of the teacher. And because the, the teachers who have gone away and studied their subjects um, at university know so much about them, they're able to decide this is what needs to go on the curriculum because they have that overview, they have this broad knowledge of, the, of what could go on the curriculum and we curate the things that we think are most important within those disciplines. And I think that is something that we are very consistent on, very insistent on with our curriculum at Michaela and we think that that leads to a really rigorous education for the kids. One of the other things that we focus on is memory and we believe that by the time our pupils leave Michaela, we don't just want them to have a rich understanding of each discipline that they study, but also remember the key facts, the key ideas forever or for as long as they possibly can. Um, and so memories are built into the way in which we design a curriculum. We constantly revisit key ideas. Um, we do some rote learning, but we always understand that rote learning is the beginning of a journey that leads eventually to, to flexible understanding. Um, and a lot of the arguments that the opposition, that an, an opposition that we face is the, the argument that perhaps we don't encourage critical thinking, uh, we don't encourage good analysis skills. But actually, we would argue that by having knowledge embedded firmly in the long-term memory, that's the thing that allows you to then think critically. Without that knowledge firmly embedded, how are you to analyze the events in, in history? Or how are you to analyze and evaluate a scientific experiment? How are you able to think critically about it unless it is something that you, are, uh, you have firmly mastered and so I would say that our curriculum is one of mastery. Um, and finally, the thing I would say, and that links to some other parts of the book, is uh, we, we celebrate being British in our curriculum as well, because ultimately the, the one thing that unites all of the pupils that we have in our school is that we are all British. Uh, we all live in this wonderful country, and therefore British history sits proudly in our curriculum. Um, and so do art... Uh, authors like Shakespeare and Dickens, just because they happen to be dead white men does not mean that we think that they, not, they shouldn't be on the curriculum. If anything, that we, 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 we celebrate with pride that they've contributed so much to, to the world of literature. Um, and so I think these are some of the key things that we think about 
uh, when it comes to curriculum and that you can explore more of when you read the book. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Pratish. Some really interesting points in relation to the curriculum and the selecting of the most important things to teach, especially those things that students wouldn't otherwise know about. The next chapter author is maths teacher Natalie Jones. Hi, I'm Natalie Jones and I'm a maths teacher and the careers advisor and the Kayla School. And I'm going to talk about culture today. Um, Now, obviously, the title of our most recent book, The Power of Culture, I think really emphasises why, you know, or sorry, how important we think culture is. Um, You know, it is the title. And and what do I mean by culture? So in our classrooms, for example, the, the culture is for pupils to sit in silence, listen to the teacher, to not call out, um, to participate loads. That is the prevailing culture in our classrooms. And, and why is it important that that is the prevailing culture? Well, human beings naturally want to be part of the group. And if most people in the classroom are, are sitting and listening and participating, well, you know, children, they want to join in. They want to feel like they fit in. So the prevailing culture being one that is um, you know, conducive to, to learning is so important. And, and if um, the prevailing culture, for example, were to be that pupils were shouting out and, and not doing their homework and not working hard, then it's very difficult to, for pupils to, to break out of that and, and to be the odd one out. Because as I say, naturally, we, you know, as humans, we want to fit in. Now, how do we get this kind of culture? Well, well, we're constantly talking to the pupils about things like gratitude, you know, being grateful and, and why we have so much to be grateful for. How do we help them do this? So we have things like appreciations. Now, at the end of lunchtime, every day the pupils have the opportunity to, to give appreciations to someone who, is, who they are grateful for um, in that day. So it could be a teacher. Um, it could be it could be a friend, it could be a family member, and, and they can stand up and give that appreciation to all of their peers. And it's such a powerful tool because it means that, you know, gratitude is part of the culture we have at the school. We also talk a lot about personal responsibility and duty and, and how um, people have a duty to their class to, to behave and to work hard. They have a duty to their family to do them proud. Um, and... And we encourage them to take responsibility. We encourage them to to not make excuses and to think about what they could have done differently. So, so for example, if a pupil was late to school, we might say to them, why are you late? And they might say, oh, the the bus was was caught in traffic. And we'll say something along the lines of, you know, rather than, oh, that's okay, we understand, you know, sometimes, you know, there are traffic jams and, and let them off. What we would say is, well, what could you have done differently to make sure you were on time? And of course, the answer to that is leave some some time in the morning so that, you know, there is leeway in case there is a traffic jam. So we would say leave your house 10, 15 minutes earlier so that if there is traffic again, you are not late. And we're, we're constantly encouraging them in small ways like that to see what they could have done differently and to take responsibility for themselves. And why do we do this? Well, if we take responsibility... We're freed from excuses. We're, we're, you know, we're giving the, the, the people's freedom. And, and in the end, when you feel as if you uh, have the power to control you know, your actions, then you, you feel happier, you feel freer, and you feel happier. And all of these small things that we have in the school that, that every day build up the culture mean that it's a safe 
and happy place for pupils to, to, to learn and more importantly for teachers to teach because if if it's not a safe and happy place for teachers to teach then it, it can't be a happy place for pupils to learn. Now, as a staff body, um, we believe in consistency across uh, different methods. So we have slant, for example, um, and we all say similar phrases. Now, when I say consistency, that does not mean that we're all robots. Far from that. Everybody has their own personality in the classroom. But the consistency that we have, the culture of consistency, means that pupils feel safe. They know what to expect. They know um, what they're going to get from lesson to lesson. And that gives them a uh, feeling of safety that means that they, they're free to contribute. They're free to, to put their hand up and try and make mistakes because they are confident of, of what is happening in every single lesson. As a, as a staff body, we also believe in, in being honest with each other and being truthful. So, um, you know, we do things that, that have high impact, not things that, that look as if we're doing the right thing. So we're constantly observing each other. We have a culture that means that we observe each other's lessons all the time. So I might have a member of staff in the back of my classroom, maybe mm, probably two or three times a day, I'd say. And what they're doing is they're, they're giving feedback and we're, we're being honest to each other. So if a member of staff comes in and gives me some honest feedback about my lesson, you know, it's then my job to take personal responsibility and, and not make excuses and, and learn from what they've said. And the culture of honesty that we have means that as a staff body, we're constantly improving and it allows us to have high expectations of ourselves as well as of the pupils. Now, I mean, in some schools, they might do observations as well, but they're very high stakes. And, and then you have this long form at the end that you're filling in with some targets, etc, etc. We don't do that here because we don't believe that that actually leads to the good culture of honesty and improvement, which is what we're after. The honest feedback that we have from frequent observations, however, does lead to a culture of constant improvement. Now, all of these small things... They, they work together. So the culture we have wouldn't be what it is if, if we only had one say. So if we only believed in gratitude and didn't believe in honesty, then we wouldn't have what we have. And it's really important that all these small things are constantly working together to create the culture we have here at Michaela, which is a happy place to learn, a happy place to teach, and a safe and happy place for the pupils to be day in, day out. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Natalie. A real insight into culture at Michaela and why it's so important. Our final insight, before we hear how readers have reflected, is from Katie Ashford on teaching. Hello, my name's Katie Ashford, and I'm going to be talking about teaching at Michaela. At Michaela, teachers have the freedom to really teach. Our tight behaviour systems and our strong relationships with pupils mean that we can spend every single lesson ensuring pupils think hard about challenging subject content. So what are the hallmarks of a Michaela lesson? Well, first of all, we try to keep things as consistent as possible across the board. Of course, sometimes some things work in some subjects and not so well in other subjects, so we do take that into account. But generally speaking... We use, the, we use similar routines and similar approaches to teaching to ensure that our pupils have a consistent experience across the school. So one of the first things we do in our lessons is we have lots of really speedy routines that help to reduce the amount of time spent on simple tasks such as handing out books. For example, at the start of the lesson, pupils are um, invited to enter the room and sit down 
and the teacher will ask everybody to track the front, to listen to them carefully and fold their arms sitting up straight. We call this slanting. Then the teacher will say, OK, when I say go, you're going to hand out the exercise books. The exercise books will usually be placed on the end of the row in a pile or on the windowsill in a pile. And the people nearest to the books will hand them down the road to the next people and so on until everybody has their book. This can take only five to ten seconds, which really speeds up the process of getting pupils ready for learning. We use similar speedy routines for things like getting out equipment or um, putting things back away, putting things away at the end of the lesson. So all of these small routines really help pupils to um, engage in the lesson, it increases the pace and um, it just makes everyone feel energised and ready to learn. Another big routine that you'll see in all classrooms at Michaela is turn to your partner. Turn to your partner is a really helpful way for pupils to practice thinking um, and work through difficult content with their partner um, before they're asked to perform it in front of the room or to answer a question or to do some writing. For example, we might ask pupils a very simple question such as, um, what was the main reason Shakespeare wrote Macbeth? And then the teacher will say, three, two, one, turn to your partners. And very, very quickly, the pupils turn to each other and they discuss the answer to their question. And the teacher only gives them maybe 20, 30 seconds. And then the teacher says, three, two, one, hands up. And the pupils turn back, their hands go up immediately. And then a pupil is chosen to answer the question. This works really well across all subjects. And pupils have said to us that they really like it. They feel that it gives them a bit of rehearsal time. It gives them the chance to think through something a bit more complicated before they're asked to answer a question. So it also reduces their anxiety a little bit around having to give a difficult answer in the middle of the class. And one thing we really like about it is it means that 99% of the time you get 100% of hands up for every question. Another routine that you'll see frequently at Michaela is call and response. So, for example, a teacher might stand at the front and say, who wrote Macbeth? Three, two, one, and the pupils will all reply, William Shakespeare in unison. This is, again, a really quick, really speedy way to do lots and lots of recall questions in quick succession without having to get them to write it down or to do it individually using ordinary um, cold calling. Um, it also helps to really energise the room and gets pupils to feel really excited. We also like to give them lots of merits if they project their voices, um, if they, um, they can do it in a silly voice sometimes, they might do it in a quieter voice sometimes. We like to try and mix it up and keep it exciting for them and they really love doing this. Another activity that's used in um, particularly in maths, science and language lessons is mini whiteboards. These are popular across uh, many schools across the country and we really love them at Michaela too. But again, we like to use them with really tight routines. So the teacher will give the question, perhaps it's an equation in maths that they'll put on the board and then they'll say, OK, when I say go, not before, you're going to write your answer on your mini whiteboards and show you're working. Three, two, one, Go. And the pupils will all scrabble to their mini whiteboards. They've got their pens. They'll write down their answer as quickly as they can. And then the teacher will say, three, two, one, show. And then they can show their whiteboards to the teacher and the teacher can check whether or not they've got the correct answer. This, again, works really well. Now, to make this slightly easier in terms of the routines, every single child has their own mini whiteboard in their work pack that they carry around with them that's issued as part of their equipment. They also have two whiteboard pens because, as we know, 
whiteboard pens run out fairly frequently. And pupils are told that they must have two whiteboard pens on them at all times, otherwise they'll have a detention. And we have a stationary stop shop available in school in the morning so they can pop in first thing if they know that their pens are running out to collect a new one so that they don't have to um, get the detention. Um, in terms of uh, another way that we assess learning in lessons, we like to use multiple choice questions. And a nice way to do that so that the teacher has instant feedback to see whether or not every single child in the room is on the same page is to use a sort of old-fashioned, heads-down, uh, hands-in-the-air model. Now, what we might do is put the multiple-choice question on the board. Um, I always like to give the first option as I don't know. So I might give them a question such as, um, what uh, does the line fair is foul and foul is fair suggest and then I'll give them four or five different options. And the first option, sometimes, particularly with a lower ability class, is I don't know. And then that gives those weaker pupils a way to um, engage and to show you that they don't understand. Because that's the purpose of assessment, is to know who understands and who doesn't. So the first answer is I don't know. And then you'll have four other answers that are plausible answers that, that could be the answer to the question. And then we say, okay make sure that you've got your answer in your head. Is it, are you going to say number one, two, three, four, or five? You give them a moment, you pause, and then you say three, two, one, heads down. And then you say, okay, put your hand above your head and on your hand, show the number of fingers for the answer that you think is the correct answer. And so if they don't know, they'll put up one finger. If they think it's the second answer, they'll put two fingers. If they think it's the third answer, they'll put three fingers and so on. And then the teacher has a really, really quick assessment of the whole room to see how much, um, how, how, how many people understand and how many don't. And then the teacher can address that as, as necessary. Um, but finally, the thing that I would say that's most important about all of our lessons at Michaela, and it's something that perhaps people don't realise outside of the building, is that the most sacred part of our teaching is our relationships with our pupils. If we don't have good relationships with pupils, they don't work for us. If we don't inspire our pupils to want to work hard in our lessons, well, then they don't. So teachers spend a lot of time making sure that they build those relationships with pupils. Um, one way of doing this, for example, is spending a bit of time with the pupils at lunchtime, in the yard, um, when we have family lunch, um, in the break hall, going up to them and chatting them, chatting to them, and just asking them about their lives, about their likes and dislikes and ordinary things. So, you know, what did you watch on telly last night? What's your favourite football team? Oh, did Arsenal win at the weekend? Brilliant, good, good for them, even if you don't follow football. Um, we also, in lessons, like to try and make things a bit lighter sometimes. So, you know, some teachers like to tell lots of jokes and try and make it a bit fun in that way. Other teachers like to use nicknames, um, the uh, friendly, fun nicknames that make the kids feel really loved. Um, and some teachers like to um, just tell the kids all the time how much they believe in them and how much they love them. And these, this re these relationships really are the bedrock of the school. And if we didn't have them, um, then we wouldn't be able to teach in the way that we do and our pupils just wouldn't be able to learn in the way that they do. So I hope that that's been a helpful overview of some of the things that we do to make our teaching as great as it can possibly be at Michaela. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Katie. The thing that stands out most to me is the power of consistent routines around the school and how this can really speed up processes and allow for quick and efficient working. 
Now it's time for us to move on to the reader contribution section of the podcast. Starting with a returning contributor, we have a few today. Here's Richard MacDonald. Hi, my name is Richard MacDonald and I tweet at rjmacdonald24. I'm the Director of English at Driffield School and Sixth Form in East Yorkshire and I'm also the Trust English Lead for the Education Alliance. The chapter that I was most grateful for when I read The Power of Culture was Guy Catry's chapter Being PA to Catherine Burblesing. I felt it was really interesting to see a different side to Michaela's headmistress. You really get a sense of her as a person rather than the dragon lady label that Katri mentions at the start of the chapter. However, the thing that I was most grateful for was the impact that it had on my thoughts around leadership and what it means to be a good leader and the reflection time that I had after that really kind of made me think about how this chapter highlights some of the qualities of effective leadership. When it comes to the non-teaching stuff within a school, I always think about that popular piece of NQT advice that's obviously banding around on Twitter at the moment with it being um, the start of September about making friends with the admin staff because they'll be nice to you when you need those last minute copies, making friends with the catering staff to get an extra portion of chips or making friends with the site team um, for help with moving desks. That always seemed a little bit odd to me because surely we should be connecting and building relationships with these people because they're they're people um, that we work with rather than for what they can do for us. I feel like it's doubly important when you think about the fact that they're as much a part of the school community as the teaching staff are, Um, even more so when you consider that the turnover in those areas um, is often much lower in my experience than that of the teaching staff. When I think about Catry's chapter then and what it taught me about leadership, the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of listening and that a good leader listens. Um, Catry mentions in the chapter how she gave some feedback on the interview process and even though she is seen as, and this is her words, just a candidate, her feedback was taken into account and changes were made because of that. And I think that's reflected in the book as a whole, really, there are loads of little nuggets in there about how Michaela School has reflected and changed in light of new ideas or in light of feedback. And I think that being a constant theme throughout this book really kind of shows one of the reasons why Michaela School is successful. Um, I think it's also really important that staff feel they can contribute. And again, that was highlighted in this chapter, the fact that there is a culture at Michaela School where staff feel like they they want to be heard from, that their feedback is valued. And I think that links in with this idea of professional trust. Um, I'm really lucky to be part of uh, Matt, where the CEO, Johnny Utley, really believes strongly in professional trust and helps us as leaders to do that with our teams as well. Um, I wholly recommend um, his book, um, Putting Staff First, which he co-authored with John Tomset, um, if you want to hear more about that. I think it's also been flagged up in terms of that value of professional trust in recent conversations that I've had on Twitter. There was a particular teacher that I was discussing ideas with and they pointed out how they felt that they weren't able to give feedback even when it was asked for at their school because of the fear of being perceived as not coping. And actually, where you have that fear, um, the feedback isn't going to be genuine. It's not going to be seen as valued by the people that are giving the feedback. And I feel like that's really, really important. I've worked um, within teams and with leaders like that in the past. And I feel like the thing that makes the difference is the leaders who go beyond the lip service of saying, tell us what you think, um, and actually show the staff that they can be trusted and build that professional trust over time. 
um, it's the, the leaders there that really make the difference. I think as well, um, it also made me think about the importance of leaders being present um, and available um, within the chapter. Um, when Katri talks about how um, Catherine Bebelsing is available to staff and parents at any point and always aims to get back to them or meet with them as quickly as possible, um, often kind of instantly that moment. I think that's really important, first of all, because it does mean that issues are sorted quickly. And I imagine that means that the school runs more efficiently, in a sense, as well. But I also feel it's important from that trust perspective as well. Um, staff will trust her, I imagine, because they see her as someone who is um, honest and open in terms of being instantly available, but also not being someone who needs to prepare and research for meetings. Um, in terms of leaders that I've worked with before, I've heard leaders before, um, and this is in a, a different sector, but I've also heard leaders talk about it in education, where they see preparing for meetings with staff as pre preparing for a battle, as arming themselves with the knowledge that they need against a complaint or a, against a grievance. And I think that's really, really dangerous. It kind of destroys that professional trust because the leader doesn't trust their staff to be open with them. And that means that the staff can't trust their leaders to look out for them as well. So I think that for me was a really valuable takeaway from this chapter as well. When it comes to the conclusion of the chapter, Katri points out how she feels about working at Michaela School and she uses the phrases, I believe, and the words she feels invested um, in her work. And I think that really shows how that culture of professional trust unleashes that motivation in all staff and really helps with the job satisfaction as well. So um, thank you very much, Katri. Thank you very much um, to all the authors of the book. It was a really enjoyable and useful read. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Richard. A great choice of chapter and some interesting points to take away. Next up is Eugene McFadden, who is another returning contributor. My name is uh, Eugene McFadden. I am a Senko. At a large uh, secondary school in Cornwall. Uh, I'm also assistant head with responsibility for Key Stage 3. Um, I grew up in North London. I actually grew up in Brent. So I'm in the some way where Michaela's catchment area. And if Michaela had been around in my day, my parents would probably have sent me there. So talking today about the power of culture, talking today about two particular chapters. One is We Believe in Authority by Becky Shaw. And the next one is I Was Wrong About Michaela by Charlie Burkett. These two chapters resonate quite heavily with me because I've been thinking about the whole idea about adult authority a lot recently. And just in terms of nudging behaviour forward. And myself, I am quite a good behaviour manager, for want of a better phrase. I'm quite, I believe quite firmly in the that adults is a strong authority. We've got good behaviour in our school, but some teachers are good at behaviour, some teachers aren't good at behaviour, um, and you've got to support them. And it's just a whole, a whole idea of how you do that, how you move it forward, how it becomes your ethos. And it's also about scaling up what I do, because I am good at it, but I've been thinking, why am I good at it? So I'm getting to a kind of reflective stage where I'm thinking, I do this really well. How do I do it really well? How can I get other people to do it really well? And it's interesting reading Michaela book and also the Tom Bennett books just come out, and they're saying things that resonate, and I'm like, oh, they're doing things that I do. That means if I get people to do the things that they're doing and I'm doing, they might get better. So that kind of process. So why is it important to be an authority in the classroom? 
Well, as Michaela clearly is showing, kids end up being happier. Now, a long time ago, when I first started teaching, I used to work with a guy, and he was a very authoritative figure, for want of a better word. Some people would say authoritarian, and some people in the staff room would be like, oh, the kids are scared of him. That's why they behave. And I thought, mm, maybe not, because I've been in his classrooms, and the kids enjoyed his lessons, and he learned stuff. And I saw how the kids were with him. And, you know, you have lunch with them every day and make them, you know, use cutlery and that kind of thing. I remember watching him once make a member of staff use cutlery, which was quite funny. He was quite authoritative and the kids had a lot of time for him. And, you know, even years later, these kids, and these were tough, tough kids, would come back seeking him out to, well, to get advice. I remember one or two occasions, kids would come out of prison and it seemed their first stop wasn't going to see their mums. It was going to see him have a cup of tea, have a biscuit, probably a custard cream, and get some life advice to get their lives on track. And a lot of them would say, would say things like, oh yeah, you were right. He believed firmly in authority. And for a while there, teachers were told not to be an authority. You know, I remember those days. I remember where we were told not to be in the center of the room. Don't talk too much, you know. Record how long you talk for, talk less. Kids have got to be talking more. Um, be the guide on the side, helicopter, helicopter teach, whatever the heck that meant. Um, and people, and I'd nod these bits of training. I go, yep, that's fine. And I shut, shut my door in my classroom and I get on with being an authority in the room and teaching how I wanted to teach. And at the end of the year, when we were all comparing our exam results, I got better exam results than everyone that listened. And what was your trick? Well, I just didn't pay attention to the lectures. So I've kind of come from a long teaching experience of being an authority. And I've been places where I was told not to be an authority. And I know it was hard there. And I know the kids suffered for it. And I can see how Michaela, why they believe in authority. I believe in authority. I used to say a good teacher is a control freak in the classroom. And I was basically being a bit kind of like, well, looking for an argument almost. And people were like, oh, that's not what that means. And I've had some to and fro's about it. And I think probably authoritative is a better word, a better phrase than control freak. I believe that kids are there to learn. I believe parents are giving us their most precious thing for us to look after, for us to nurture, for us to develop. And if we are taking on this very precious thing, it is vitally important that we, as the teachers, are authorities in the room. For two reasons. One, safety. And that's really key. And that's what we talk about why make, you know, in the We Believe in Authority chapter, that safety element. If the kids are safe, they are not stressed. If they are not stressed, they're more likely to learn. They're more likely to enjoy. And people say, oh, you need to be a strict teacher. You need to be authoritative in order to control the rowdy of pupils. Yeah, fine. But you need to be authoritative for the quiet ones. You need to be authoritative so that the ones who get missed are able to get on and are able to learn and are able to not be stressed out at the back of the class. If you're authoritative, the kids are safer. If you're authoritative as well, people learn better. You, cynically, you get better results. And you can see in Michaela's recent couple of results, obviously not the ones just gone because, you know, lockdown, but the ones before. The We Believe in Authority chapter really resonated with me. The whole idea of there's certain scripts around how you say things to kids. See, I'm good at this and I'm looking at some ways to get other staff to do something similar to me, to give them the strategies to be authoritative. 
And I started, and that We Believe in Authority bit actually does give some little kind of micro skips, you know. And I really like that. And I really started using them with some of the kids because I had a way of doing it, which is kind of round and about, and it's basically the same message. But actually, their scripts are a lot better. The whole idea of that behavior is not acceptable. You are better than that. There is a consequence because I know you are better than that. And that's a really important message. So I'm actually going to be taking cynically some of the uh, words from this chapter, we believe in authority, and I'm actually going to be getting staff to start using them in their conversations with pupils. I'm also going to take the whole idea of your behavior becomes your habits and your habits become your character, which I really quite like. I like a lot of them. I got to say, I, like, I do like Michaela's um, focus upon older philosophies. I think that's really important. Um, so I was wrong about Michaela. That's the other thing I'm looking at. Because I can see exactly why someone would have that idea that Michaela is like super strict, factory school, grad grind, etc. But that's people who don't really know education. See, I've seen schools try to copy what they think Michaela is like, i.e. be super strict. And I've seen the kids walking to school miserable. And I've seen the parents not happy. And I've seen kids stuck in isolation booths for days on end for not having the right trainers or the wrong socks, whatever. And I think, well, that's not quite right. Because you're going for some kind of like super strict authoritarian school without having the important bit, which is, and until Michaela came around, I would never use this word, but love. And I think, you know, as much as uh, Miss Burbleson has some, some detractors, some quiet detractors, I'm not one of them, by the way, I do think that she's actually empowered people to talk about the importance of love in this profession we're in. And you know, it's, it is a profession, but I think more than that, it's a calling. If nothing else, Michaela has put on, put the idea that students, like teachers are in this because of love on the table again. So I've seen schools go down the super, super authoritarian route and there's no love. And cause there's no love, you don't get buying from the kids. You get unhappy kids, you get unhappy staff, and it always comes back to bite you. Whereas Michaela, they've clearly got that love bit because they're so strict, because they're so authoritative, they end up having a lot of fun. Which, to be fair, people walk into my lessons and like, oh, they're more fun than I thought they'd be. And I say, well, yeah, because everyone knows their place. And because everyone knows their place, people are secure. Because they're secure, they know where the lines are. Because they know where the lines are, I can give, the, give them the illusion of free will. And we can have a laugh and a joke and a bit of enjoyment because the kids know where the lines are. So I can see how some people get the wrong idea about Michaela. You can see it on Twitter, but any school that strict to be successful needs to have a lot of love at its core and needs to demonstrate that love through having fun, through those restorative conversations. Because those restorative conversations, yeah, they're really powerful, but they are a bolt-on to having a firm disciplinary framework that works. I think Michaela's done a lot of good I think that a lot of people are wrong about Michaela. I think a lot of people are wrong about authority as well. I think if nothing else, Michaela has helped to move the conversation a bit. So we can see that, you know what? We shouldn't be guides on the sides. We're there to be, oh God, I hate this phrase, sages on the stage. Oh, no, we're there to be teachers. We're there to be in charge of the classroom. We're there to look after the kids. We're there to give them a good education. We're there to keep them safe. We're there to give them a bit of fun as well. And we do those things, we do well. 
So I'm going to keep reading this book, which I am enjoying and does resonate with me. I'm going to keep stealing ideas from them. I'm going to keep subtly deploying them around my school. And in that, doing that, I hope I'll make the lives of a lot of kids fraction better. Because at the end of the day, that's what game we're in. Thanks. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Eugene, for some interesting reflections, both on the book specifically and related to your own personal experience both now and previously. Our next reader contribution comes from our final returning contributor, Natalie. Hi, my name is Natalie Bethel and this is the second time that I'm contributing to the Page to Practice podcast. I'm a deputy head teacher in an inner city junior school in Derby. Um, so this week we're talking about Michaela and the power of culture and as I'm sure you're all aware as you're listening to this podcast, Michaela is always a very controversial subject, but I've enjoyed watching the debate from afar because as a primary teacher, it's always been a bit like, mm, Michaela's secondary, does it really apply to me? But I have always wondered if some of the Michaela strategies could be applied to primary and if that's something in their pipeline, maybe part of their dream. So I have always enjoyed looking from afar about what they're doing, about their high expectations and the controversy that this has um, created. Um, I really like the different tone of this book compared to the Battle Hymn of the Tiger Teachers, having read that one previously. I felt that the Power of Culture book contained a lot more explanation about the how and the why, while also being honest about the challenges that they have faced. And I particularly liked the sections um, where they had the children's voices and they explained what difference Michaela had made for them, while also having some sections from the teachers where they were honest about children that had presented a lot of challenges who didn't seem to want to tow to the Michaela way from the off. And actually, it was a long, hard slog to get them there. And it was quite refreshing to read that because from a lot of ideas, it looks like all the pupils come into Michaela, they have their boot camp and then off they go. And it was quite refreshing to read about pupils who don't necessarily follow that path from the beginning. There were five standout moments for me on my first read. I'm a great believer in picking up a book again and reading it for a second, third, fourth time and finding something different each time. So I'm sure that the next time I read, there will be something different that jumps out at me. But for now, these are my five standout moments. Um, So the first one was by Jonathan Porter in his chapter, Michaela, A School of Freedom, where he discussed monster moments as times when the children aren't being their best selves and they're selling themselves short. And I really liked that idea about it not being a kick-off, a temper tantrum that the children couldn't control themselves, but that actually they knew what they needed to do, but they were doing themselves a disservice and by not handing in homework by turning up late and that they weren't being their best selves and I thought that was a really interesting switch on the classic oh they're just acting out they're kicking off that they were selling themselves short and something that I thought would be quite good to be able to reason with especially with the older pupils at my school that you're selling yourself short you're not being your best self and I just thought it was a very interesting take on it. The second takeaway for me was the whole chapter by Michael Taylor on national identity. It made me reflect hugely, both personally and professionally, as to how we can make our school more cohesive, more British, I suppose. Um, I'm still reflecting now on it. Every now and then I'll just have a little thought back as to what that made me think and feel. I I even tweeted about that chapter because it just 
resonated with me on so many levels. And um, personally, I felt he really hit the nail on the head about there being a certain level of shame about being attached to being British, and especially if you're out and proud British. Um, I find that I, I wouldn't ever, I don't think, explain to somebody and say, "Oh yes, I'm British first and foremost." I, it makes me feel awkward, and and it's really interesting as to why. Why is that? Why do people feel? awkward to say that we're British because this is where we're from we're from England and and I just thought it the way he explained it I was like that is me that's exactly me and as he said how can we expect teachers to instill that level of love and passion in children if we're not feeling that ourselves if we if we are not um excited or passionate about being British um I also thought that where he talked about creating a cohesive community. If we don't really, if we don't really care about what we stand for, how can we create that cohesive community? How can we make people believe, not just in school, but in our wider communities? If we are not bothered about being English and British, how can we expect people who um, come and join our country from other countries? How can we expect them to want to take part in our culture if we're not proud of it ourselves? The easiest takeaway for me professionally was using we as a pronoun to discuss being English and British. And, you know, this is our country. This is where we live together. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, another part for me was that it, the way he said it is part of our identity. If you live in England, if you live in Britain, being English and British is part of our identity. It's part of our culture because we live here. Um I had done an RE lesson with some year sixes last year where we talked about parts of our identity and what makes us who we are and culture. And a lot of our pupils come from various places around the world. And it was really easy for me to say to them, well, actually, part of your culture is that you're Slovakian because you're from Slovakia. And But then when I said to them, but also you're English, you're British because you live here, they looked at me like, no, I don't think so. That's not that's not who I am, that's not what I believe in. And on one level, it made me quite sad because I thought, well, you are part of this country. You you do take part in a variety of different English cultures and traditions. But then another part of me was thinking, well, actually, I don't really believe in what I'm saying to you either, that actually I don't feel proud to be English. So if I don't feel proud to be English and I've lived here all my life, then why should you feel proud to be English when you've been here a matter of months, a matter of years. I just thought it was really interesting and as I say, something I'm still reflecting on, but something that I think is really important in how we can bring diverse communities with many different nationalities and languages represented, how we can bring them together under that banner of Englishness and Britishness without being ashamed of that. And I just thought it was really interesting. Like I say, something I'm still reflecting on. Uh, another really quick takeaway, which I can't find the author for, even though I've flicked through the book many times, was about post-it note pupils. Um, just making sure that once you've done those quizzes, those um, assessment for learning activities, that you check in more regularly with those pupils. So you make a little post-it note of who they are, stick it to your laptop, stick it on your notebook, whatever it is, and then um, checking in on those pupils more often. I just thought it was a such a simple and easy idea which could be implemented straight away and it is something that I'll be sharing with my trainees uh, within school because it was just brilliantly simple and I thought why have I never thought of that myself so that was a really quick takeaway for me. 
Another really reflective chapter for me was the chapter on servant leadership by Catherine Burblesing. It resonated on so many levels for me um, as a leader in terms of creating a collective team that are consistent, that are working together to achieve a goal. I particularly like the section with there being no hero teachers, while also having the open communication. As someone who always works hard to overcome that horrible frog in the throat feeling when you're having a difficult conversation. I particularly like the whole section on candour and the Thomas Sowell quote, when you want to help people, tell them the truth. And when you want to help yourself, tell them what they want to hear. And that was something that really resonated with me. Something that I think maybe like Catherine, I might print off and have up in my office. um, Because it's really easy to just gloss over those moments where you think, mm, I could say something, but actually, is it going to help? Well, it will always help because if you're glossing over something, you're not being direct with that person. So they're going to carry on thinking that what they're doing is the right thing, that what they're doing is what you've told them to do. And then actually, it's not. So Sometimes, like like the quote says, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. And when you want to help yourself, when you want to give yourself an easy ride, you tell them what they want to hear. Something that I'm hoping I'll be able to work on a bit more this year, but I really found that um, quite an inspirational quote. And quite a, The whole chapter was very inspirational. And like I say, there was a number of things I thought, yes, I'm already doing that. Yes, I can give myself a tick in that area but there are a few things that I thought "Mm, I can improve on that we can make that a bit tighter at our school so yeah a really good chapter especially for those who are interested in leadership or who or who already or are already our leaders goodness me that was a mouthful and my final reflection and again I can't find the author despite flicking through um was around having a culture of high expectations and I made a note of this quote um I make notes as I read these books so that I can come back to them and have a look. And the note that I made was, um, statistically, it can be harder if you're a certain gender, ethnicity or religion, but you don't have to consider yourself limited by those things. And again, I just thought that was such a well put together sentence because yes it's true if statistically if you are a woman if you are black if you are Asian um if you do follow the, a religion that isn't the predominant one within that country you probably will find yourself statistically finding it harder to get into jobs to get access to different Uh, opportunities within the community and so on but you don't have to see yourself as limited and again something that just really flicked a switch in my head for me Um, I work in a really diverse community and I see these limitations every day I see children come in and going well I don't speak English what's the point in trying Um, I'm a girl what's my you know my family don't believe that I'll actually ever be any good what's the point in me learning in fact um we were writing some sentences in year three just just this week and one of the sentences was was I like learning and they had to continue with a coordinating conjunction and one of the girls who is um Asian wrote uh I like learning but my dad doesn't want me to and then somebody else wrote I like learning but I have to go to mosque and it just made me sad that they've already got that perspective that they they like doing these things and whether they made it up for the purposes of the activity, I'm not sure. But it still shows that level of limitation that that was something that they felt that they could write and they're in year three. And yeah, it just struck a bit of a chord with me. 
So I work in I work in this environment. I have to overcome these limitations with these children every day. And I just thought that quote showed that actually we need to believe in lifting the lid for these pupils. And if they know that we believe in them, then they start to believe in themselves and then they no longer believe in the limits. And as much as people debate different things about Michaela and whether it's too strict and everything else, actually that's what Michaela does really, really well. And they lift those that lid for those children, like looking at their results that they've got for um, GCSEs, for A-levels. They quite clearly lift the lid for a lot of children. Children go there who may have been written off in various different schools for various different reasons, and they leave with much better life prospects because Michaela have believed in them, because they have lifted the lid off what they felt that they could achieve and whether you like it or not you can't disagree with that and that's something that I find truly inspiring that that's what they believe in they believe that everyone can achieve and that they will with the power of culture behind them so a few of my quick takeaways there I thought it was a really interesting book and like I say I'm sure that when I pick it up again there'll be something new that I find and it's still on my wish list of places to go and visit. So thank you very much for everyone for putting that together. It was a really interesting read. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Thank you, Natalie. An interesting observation about the difference between the two Michaela books. I like the way you picked up on five key standout points to share with us and it's great to hear from a primary's perspective. Hello, my name's Steve Cox. I'm a teacher in a secondary school in Birmingham. I'm going to be looking at the new book from Michaela called The Power of Culture. I came across Michaela from their first book, which is Battle Hymn of the Tiger Teachers, and it introduced me to methods and ideas that that I'd obviously been thinking about, um, but not necessarily been putting into practice. I found it a very challenging book. Um, I also found it very informative. And I then, about a year later, went and visited Michaela myself. For me, the two books, the first book for me is a book which looks at um, some of the methods and people got quite, uh, people take the methods and see them being being able to be easily used. These were things like didactic teaching, um, some of the silent corridors of family lunch, these sort of ideas. I feel like the second book, The Power of Culture, is looking more at the why, whereas the first book looked more at the how, what things to do. I think people had been taking the ideas from the first book, but not necessarily fully understanding and getting behind the rationale and reason for some of these practices. So for me, I feel the second book that's come out, this Power of Culture book, um, is really helpful in, in what it explains as the actual fundamentals and people to understand um, the thinking behind it. And I think schools, it can be dangerous in schools when schools take practices and see something and say, yeah, that looks good. I like what that's able to achieve, but not necessarily be grounded in the same sort of um, beliefs um, that go with that sort of uh, practice. So as I say, for me, the second book was really helpful in putting down some of the reasons why. The second book, The Power of Culture, has um, a number of different chapters. Each chapter is written by a different author. For that reason, I'm not doing an overview of the whole book, but I've chosen one of the chapters. 
The chapter that I've chosen is called National Identity and it's by Michael Taylor. I first was looking through and thinking which chapters to do um, and having read through the book, honestly, this was one of the chapters that I first sort of considered um, how much I was going to agree with this and also that it was probably a more challenging co uh, chapter than maybe some of the others. So I chose National Identity and Michael Taylor. Um, some of the things that I talked about, what Michael Taylor talks about, is the idea that pupils have a sense that they are a part of this country. And that's very much a fundamental. And the fact that when they think about themselves, they would associate themselves strongly with both England and Britain. Now, this can be quite controversial, and, and Michael mentions and discusses about how in a lot of other countries there is pride in one's nation, one's flag, um, one's national anthem and he was drawing on the point that actually within Great Britain and specifically within England there's a little bit of uncomfortableness that people find with that sense of pride and very much a sense of embarrassment as well. So it's a good chapter that looks at some of those it looks at what our history is, but also looks at it as in we have a joint history. We have one that unites and a nation's history is part of um, the, the DNA of who they are. Now, that includes history, which we, um, we know things in the past were done which were wrong. And they're things that we, um, we know are controversial in our own history. But at the same time, it's important that we look at that to learn from that and to understand a bit better all the different people who were interacting at that time. And I think for me, when I've read that, one of the specific things is understanding why people do what they did in the time and culture that they were. I think in our current time and culture, it's very easy to look back in the past and things which we are now enlightened about Back then, they were things that wouldn't have um, been able to be considered in such a way. Um, that's not giving people completely, absolved people from their actions. But I think, and Michael's uh, chapter really helps us to understand that there was context at the time of some of those. I th the other thing that I find with Michaela and quite striking is this idea that when we think of all the children who... Um, are at school in Great Britain and in England, the fact that they are having their education in this country is the thing which actually unites and gives them everything in common. Some of the other things that I've picked up from this, as I say, um, because we have had a jaded history in a sense in this country, then often national identity we, we wish to sideline. And part of this is is a is a push and a desire and a good desire um, to for us to become more tolerant society. So in that sense, the, the the shape of England has changed, and in that sense, there is then greater need for us to tolerate differences of opinion, um, but also in a sense to embrace that. So our new thing of diversity, in a sense where our nation has become within the last 50, 70 years um, much, much more diverse is a way of trying to then raise tolerance in, in an ever-changing Great Britain.
But at the same time, some of this diversity, as Michael points out, is that it can create a rejection of anything which is British and anything that is English. Many identities are celebrated under the skin, as Michael talks about. We, we embrace people from all sorts of different backgrounds, different beliefs, different ways of expressing themselves. But the one thing that we don't tolerate, in a sense, is where we are concerned about what is uh, Britishness and Englishness in a way that would be seen as extreme. So as he talks about, he talks about how um, this nation and education is rooted in a common culture. We have history. Um, we have particular values and traits which are recognisable as British and English traits. And that is something as somebody is growing up, being born and growing up into um, Great Britain and England, these are things that they will pick up and see. And people from other countries will see particular ways that British people do things or think or say, and for those they would. I think going on into the chapter, a very challenging part and one which is probably the real Marmite bit of Michaela is some of the practices they do. And the first one Michael talks about is the flying of the Union Jack flag outside. Now, most of us know this, that if we go, go along a street and we see someone with a flag, a British flag, on a, um, on a pole, then we would be concerned about the people in there. We would think straight away that in front, some, right, some way that they had quite nationalistic and unhelpful um, attitudes. The fact that the Union Jack flag is flown outside is quite distinct in a sense of the rest of British. I don't know of another school that does that. They may well be those. But again, it's this idea of embracing identity rather than needing to apologise, be embarrassed and even reject those things. Another thing I found interesting from Michael was talking about the practice at Michaela of singing national songs. Singing is something that cultures use very much to unite them. It often speaks of the narrative of that country and expresses something. Um, and again, it's just this wondering if, if this is something we are actually missing out to our detriment, as it were. Um, I've not known singing within schools for a very long time. Um, and so, again, that's just an interesting practice that they do. I think within curriculum, and there's been a lot talked about curriculum at the moment, and it seems to be the big one, especially with um, Ofsted, is the idea that a priority of both English and British in the sense of history, it's geography, music, art and literature. So very much an emphasis that children understand those aspects, the British aspects to those subjects before moving on to anything else. Um, I think the next point where they take pupils to visit important um, historical sites, I think that's something that a lot of schools do in a sense and would see that as their provision for capital culture. Um, so that one is probably less controversial. Um, the idea of using the pronoun we when we talk about England or Britain Okay, a lot of these subtleties have really important um, implications as well. Talking about uh, Remembrance Day, Remembrance, uh, having a school service, which is to do with Armour's Day in November. Again, I think that is a common practice in a lot of schools. The difference between other schools there is, is much less. 
the Queen's birthday, again, is a bit of a novel one. Um, I don't think if you ask the pupil where, what day was the Queen's birthday, what day is her official birthday, what is the difference between the two, I think most pupils in this country would not be able to um, answer that correctly. St George's Day is an interesting one because both nationally, that's, that's a controversial um, idea of whether that is something to be celebrated, whether that should be a national holiday. But the idea of celebrating the patron saint, which again is something that happens in other United Kingdom countries, um, yet it's not something necessarily pushed in this country. And as I say, if you see somebody's flag out in their windows, whatever, on St George's Day, there's a natural assumption about that person. I think the idea of being fortunate to live in this country and its uh, opportunities and tolerance, I think that's come up quite a lot nationally within the last six months to 12 months, where because we have so many debates about so many different things that that we wonder whether they're actually good things or bad things, whether things should be removed, that very much is goes together with with the idea that it's a tolerant society that is able to discuss those things. Another important bit from Michael's chapter is talking about helping children to socialise, okay, into society. If if they're not able to identify, understand and know their position within this country, then then it will create problems in their future. The idea that there are habits, cultures and customs and that they are to become aware of that yet on the same fact that we are a diverse group of people within the UK but that can still be a point which can be uniting and can give us pride in our country. I think one of the important things that I picked up from this chapter and I've sort of read it elsewhere or picked up the same idea is that if we don't educate pupils fully to embrace different opinions different perspectives and we don't increase their knowledge of what this country is really about then a lack of that can often lead to more extreme views and it means that groups that wish to um, push particular ways of thinking ways of acting towards others in in britain those without the knowledge are actually um, more susceptible to some of those arguments which lack any substance, but without any prior knowledge, then that is going to be an area which is quite easy for them to be um, taken in by. So there really is an important aspect here of teaching what it is to be English, what it is to be British, what it is to have identity with a diverse culture and a diverse nation to then be able to understand fully and have a more balanced opinion. Another thing that, that's quite interesting from uh, what Michael is talking about in this book is the idea of rituals. So there are certain things that nations do, and one of whom is uh, one of the things they talk about, and again, this is going back to this idea of congregational singing, and for them this is to do with national hymns and anthems. This Michael sees very much as a way to build trust and to bring uplifting in unity. People singing together, people do it at football matches, they sing particular songs which are related to their football team 
Um, but as a nation, that's something we then start to um, feel more embarrassed about. The fact that you can have people who are happier to identify with their football team than they are to identify with their nation. The last point for me, and, and bringing this to a close, and what I particularly got out of Michael's chapter, was this idea of helping children to feel part of something bigger. We know that a lot of children gravitate towards gangs and there's a real idea of a sense of belonging, wishing to be part of something and to be included. And if this is not provided for children through school and through the idea of belonging to a nation, then this can very easily lead to the searching for inclusion in a different form of society and one which is detrimental, one which is negative, one which is dangerous. Lastly, his challenge was to do with the fact that we are employed by the state. So we have a responsibility in the sense to the people of this country, the taxpayers that pay for us to teach and the people who provide children for us to teach and to expose our pupils to as much of this country's culture as we can. It's, all, it's about not shying away from it and not to be felt, feel embarrassed. To try and look beyond what has been before, which is the idea of teaching children about individualism, about themselves, and for them to try and understand and see their part in a collective, as it were, their contribution to this nation. And his warning, Michael's warning, is that without this, if we do build an individualistic generation, then people are never going to know or be able to contribute to what has been an ongoing national story. So there are challenging parts to this chapter, the idea of um, having a flag outside your school, the idea of singing national songs, the idea of identifying with particular national events. But all this is very much tied up in the belief that by helping children find their place within their own nation and to be able to share some common beliefs and common experiences, this is actually one of the most important aspects that we can use to help children in the future. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, Stephen. Another interesting comparison of the two books and a really thorough look at the chapter on national identity. Our next reader contribution is from Nikki. Hello, my name is Nikki and my Twitter handle is at teacher underscore N Jones. I'm a history teacher, head of year and PSHE lead. Firstly, what I really enjoyed about this book is hearing from the different perspectives of staff members and how they create and explain the way their culture is in a specific area at Michaela. Um, although the chapters are written by different individuals, in my opinion, there is a really clear consistency that stands out throughout the whole book. I pre-ordered the book initially um, as a way of reflecting on my own practice, really. I wanted to see how I could create and embed and, and build a strong culture uh, foundation for my year group as being a newly appointed head of year. I became head of year in the last academic year, so although it was quite challenging, um, you know, in the second part of the year, as it was for everybody during home learning, there was, from a pastoral point of view, actually, it gave me a larger opportunity to connect with and build relationships, so it, Ultimately, there was, you know, a really big bonus in that um, in that sense, 
where I was able to connect with and build relationships with so many more students and, and parents and carers that ordinarily on a normal day to day, um, you may not be able to do seeing as you, you may not see, um, you know, your students in your year group regularly um, throughout the day. The following quote in the book summarises how I feel really and and having good relationships is key in all schools and I couldn't agree more because I know certainly reflecting on my own practice as a head of year you do have to proactively look for opportunities to build relationships. You don't necessarily get those easily throughout the school day. You could for example only have one um, class with your year group in in a year group that's a size 200 plus for example especially in my case you know, that that is the case, something that you can easily get caught up in um, as a head of year is, you know, what's going wrong, whose behaviour hasn't been right that day. So something that I'd really, you know, recommend doing and something that is is written in the book in many different chapters and different ways is being really proactive and consistent in your approach with your own year group um, and in your own teaching. Something that I've realised more since reading this book, I think, and reflecting on my own experiences as a teacher as well, is that consistency and effort isn't a given. Not everyone makes the same effort to build relationships with students um, that perhaps others do. And likewise, students don't make the same effort um, in building relationships with, with all staff. So I think above all, something you know the book ties together quite nicely is that there needs to be a consistency and a shared culture for staff and students in order to build those relationships, especially where they're not being built already. Um, something that I've then started to do really to increase and continue the contact that we've built over home learning on a wider scale is um, really small changes that I think are hopefully in the end might have a big impact. It's things like sending an email, sending a text, um, making a phone call home, giving updates really on the, the, you know, the small things, the everyday things, as well as, you know, where something's not going right, acknowledge where the positives are as well. Something that I've found since doing this is the appreciation of the time and the effort that you've put into the students. It's something that the students acknowledge, I think, especially now when you're almost continuing a conversation you had during home learning now that they're back in school. And I think it's something as well that's acknowledged by parents and carers. You know, you are an authority figure that sometimes... Um, parents and carers can feel you know not as comfortable in talking to and then you know the more effort that's put into opening up a conversation and having a a regular dialogue with parents and carers it's something that allows those sort of barriers to be you know drawn down a little bit really in order to make everyone feel comfortable and I think there's an analogy in the book um it's not specific about parents and carers really but it it talks about having a trust bucket and the essential idea is understanding that for students their trust bucket is described as being hard to fill and easy to spill and I think that's the same case for parents and carers as well the relationships that you're building especially pastorally are key in in order for you to be able to support that student as best you can and I think this again just shows, you know, what the the book itself is showing that the relationships that you build are so important, and the consistency that you're able to then have is is really key in in supporting those students and having those genuine connections that are then appreciated. And then hopefully, ultimately, you you know you're topping up the trust buckets, you know, of the students and and the people that you're working with. One way I've reflected on my own practice is to look at how I am as a leader of my year group, how effective have some of the behaviour strategies I've used and put in place been, you know, especially in the circumstances where it's the same names on the detention list, for example. Um, Something I've done 
really, and a work in progress, I guess, is um, uh, nicely put in the book of show them how to fly. You know, what am I doing to show them how to fly? Um, so a work in progress, really, for me is to try and encourage and ensure students actually understand the why. Why do we have expectations of them? And more importantly, why they should have high expectations for themselves. The chapter that first stood out to me for this reason was the getting the culture right in year seven. Um, I do agree with what it says in the chapter about how year seven are particularly impressionable and that they do need to focus on ensuring the students are aware of your high expectations as a teacher, a member of staff, in order for them to understand what it is that you expect of them, but also in order so that they can be masters of their own fate as it's put in the book. You know, what are we then putting in place to help them fly, for them to be the masters of their own fate? Having a consistent behaviour policy, having staff be consistent in that policy, especially, for example, if you're leading a pastoral team, do you have... Um, form time routines that are consistent something that I've I've included this year um, since looking at reflection and building a culture is is having an opportunity to discuss things in form time you know so I've started the academic year with more opportunities for reflection so for example the students in a form time activity may have a sort of grid of questions discussion questions which might be as simple as um music or movies or it might be more specific so how do you stay motivated how um important is it to be resilient and why is it important to be resilient i think a, an overall sort of message throughout really is what is it that we can do that shows that what we are doing is in everything that we do So for me specifically this year, it's, you know, our academy values. How can I show the students that that is in everything they do? It's in their reward system. It's in their lessons. It's in their form time. It's in their assemblies. Showing them how to be respectful individuals, explaining what it means to be ambitious and have aspirations above what they currently have for themselves. A nice quote to summarise really is in the Tough Love chapter and it's, it says there, without strong relationships involving mutual respect, inside jokes and indeed occasional banter, you will never get the most out of your pupils. And I think it summarises that really our presence is crucial, our consistency is key into creating these strong foundations and strong relationships that ultimately mean we you know, have an area that's calm and consistent and caring, an environment that is strong and appropriate for students to learn and flourish you're listening to from page to practice join the conversation on twitter using hashtag page practice podcast thanks nikki that's such a good point you make about how the book fits together well despite each chapter being written by different people it's been great to hear about your own experience and how it fits with what you've read next up we hear from andy hello Uh, So I just wanted to talk about uh, my thoughts on one of the chapters of the new book by Michaela School, The Power of Culture. Uh, The chapter I'm going to focus on is um, written by Michael Taylor. It's um, on national identity. And the reason I find this interesting is because national identity is something that frequently in my experience of the schools I've worked in is something that isn't really allowed to be to be discussed uh for fear of uh it for some reason the idea of you you identifying as something that isn't somebody else might be offensive to another identity somewhere else um there, there seems to be a, a 
sort of a frightened nature of 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 not being able to discuss um your national identity at least the reason why i find this interesting is because um we live in a world where identity is meant to be everything um your race gender sexuality all of these immutable identity traits were now led to believe mean absolutely everything rather than the content of your character um the benefits uh that i find in in having in, in everyone having a shared national identity crucially a shared national identity is that it allows everyone regardless of those differences i just previously identified as it allows everyone to come together under you know one flag one anthem as is repeated in this book quite a lot one team the whole school works as one team and there's a lot of mention of family um and it's crucial to the success of um pupils students it's crucial to the development of teachers as well and it's unique it's something that you wouldn't find in another school um and i've worked in many whilst being on supply and uh other places that I've worked for longer periods of time. Um, th- this is very, very unique. Some of the things that um, are said that Michael writes about, he says that the things that I've done at Michaela, some of them are, firstly, um, the, he says, we fly the union flag outside the school at all times during the school day. I would challenge you to find another school in the United Kingdom that does this. Um it, it this is the first time I've ever heard of something like this being done. And I wonder if why maybe a lot of people are afraid to do it for reasons that you're led to think that, you know, anything British must therefore mean a link to colonialism or imperialism. Um, and evidently by um, the way that um, they go about issuing this sort of or instilling national identity in this book, isn't it's not to impose things about imperial imperialism and colonialism in fact um their their broader look at history um doesn't glorify those things it allows for critical thinking um critical thinking particularly of uh british history and therefore allows them to have a much more broader understanding of um of 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 the history of this country rather than the sort of romanticised view that people seem to think is taught in schools, and I'm not entirely sure that it is. Um, as he says here, we prioritise British and uh, English and British history, uh, geography, music, art, literature as part of a broad and balanced curriculum that incorporates European and global perspectives. People seem to think that a focus on national identity, as a, a British national identity, doesn't allow for these things, but clearly it does. Um, another thing as well, uh, to help with this, one thing that I find is, is interesting as well, is where he says here, again on page 75, uh, we use the we pronoun whenever we talk about England or Britain. We discourage pupils from saying your country or this country. This is vital because it creates, again, that sense of family that has been mentioned in previous chapters and this sense of unity and teamwork that everyone is working together to strive toward one uh, one particular goal, which is, I would think, that in order to create, you know, everyone can create themselves to be the best that they can be. Um, 
And, you know, I, I, I'm hearing myself thinking now that if I was to say this to... I, I know that by saying that phrase, creating people to be the best that they can be, to some um, some colleagues that I've worked with in the past, I just know that if I said that phrase to them, they would look and roll their eyes uh, as if that's something that, that... That's an idea they haven't got time for because they've got far too much um, to do on their, on their schedule. Um, for all the talk of how overworked teachers are to put in the legwork and the time and dedication that has clearly been put in uh, to Michaela in such an intrinsic way uh, with um, even even the slightest of details that I've focused on here, you can see that they really are working strongly towards um, like what, what would effectively be a better society if indeed everyone Imagine if every school could be like Michaela. That would be a phenomenal place to live. Um, so fascinating. I'm uh, looking forward to reading the rest of the book uh, and looking forward to listening to what everyone else has to say. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Andy. It's particularly interesting that so many readers have picked up this chapter as a key takeaway, but yet you've all made slightly different comments. The whole point of this podcast, really, how different people can read the same text and have different thoughts and applications. Finally, we hear from John. Hello, I'm John Bald, and I've been working in education for almost 50 years. My website is www.johnbald.typepad.com. My book today is Michaela, The Power of Culture edited by headmistress Catherine Burblesing and written by members of the school staff. Many of the school's principles are set out in its first book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Teachers, which I recommend particularly for its work on assessment, and many of its classroom techniques are similar to those in Teach Like a Champion. The power of culture takes us beyond these by going into detail on the thinking behind the techniques and on the school's systematic approach to developing good relationships. As Catherine said on any questions, children need and depend on such relationships with their teachers if they're to do their best for them, and this aspect of Michaela's work has received less attention than the discipline that makes building relationships possible. Michaela, for example, uses two tutor periods a day to reinforce relationships, help pupils focus on their work, and promote private reading. This is a long read, 400 pages, and I've had it for a month. It's worth reading slowly as there is insight and detail in every chapter and on every page. I'll start with Hin Tai Ting, head of the Year 11 group that achieved last year's unprecedented results. In addition to Mr Ting's account of his own work, it has extensive testimony from pupils, many of them with special needs, serious behavioural problems and disturbed lives outside school, and how Michaela has given them a future by enabling them, to buy into, enabling them to buy into its system and succeed. There's nothing elitist about Michaela's excellence. Like other schools, it uses nurture groups, but expects the same standard of work from them as from other pupils. Um, Jessica Lund's sixth form chapter shows how pupils are guided towards the highest aspirations for their talents and abilities. Michaela streams but without the stigma that's come to be associated with it. Every child matters and everyone knows it. 
It also has a clear idea of the forces raged against it. <clears throat> and Samuel Hurst's chapter on the damage done by mobile phones, digital detox, is an indictment of the damage they do personally and intellectually. Michaela advocates brick phones, basic phones that keep people in touch, but don't allow abuse. Throughout this book, excellence is really the baseline. Sarah James' chapter on RE is the only work on this subject I've come across that I think is of any use at all and shows how knowledge and thinking go together to produce understanding and combat the damage done by what she describes as religious illiteracy. Michael Taylor and Grace Stegall are equally convincing on history and geography and show how far removed Michaela's approach is from its critics caricature of rote learning and regurgitation. Katie Ashford sums up the thinking in her chapter on organisers, which are used to provide a context for new knowledge so that it is understood and can later be applied flexibly. She uses the lack of, she sees the lack of context in rote learning as preventing understanding and so making it useless. Teaching in London in the 70s, I noticed that pupils don't like tests, but enjoy quizzes, particularly when they can cheat by working on the answers beforehand. Michaela uses quizzes systematically across all subjects, and I commend this as a very good idea indeed. Michaela's culture contrasts with the divisions and conflicts in the society outside its gates, which is the context of people's lives. Attention to detail is expected from everyone, staff as well as pupils, and enables pupils to approach each aspect of their life with confidence that they'll succeed. Michael Taylor's chapter on lunch, fostering cooperation, politeness and intellect is exemplary and achievable by all. I saw the same approach to the same standard in Wentworth Nursery School when I was working in Hackney. Editing the book and obtaining such consistent excellence from Michaela's staff, associate staff as well as teachers, is one of Catherine Burblesing's greatest achievements and her own chapter has a strong sense of vocation as well as practice. The school is completely, in my experience, uniquely open about everything it does. Once it has visitors' DBS details, they're free to enter any classroom, as are other teachers who freely feed back on each other's work, positively or negatively. The principle, as Catherine says, is to leave the ego at the door. This is, incidentally, a prime requirement of good inspection and observation. So how has it helped my practice? I visited the school twice and hope to again. I can commend the book to those I work with, whatever their role, and it helps me understand and confirm the success of other schools using similar approaches, including West London Free School and Great Yarmouth Charter Academy. It's the best book on schools education I've read and deserves close attention, even from those whose starting point may be very different. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thank you, John. I think that your contribution provides us with a useful summary of the book and may well be the final nudge that persuades any listeners that haven't yet read it to get a hold of their own copy. Thanks so much to all of today's contributors. Something tells me that this has the potential to be a really popular episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you felt able to share with friends and colleagues, leaving a review on your podcast platform or supporting the podcast in another way. From Page to Practice is now available in a wide range of platforms, including Amazon Alexa, which I'm pretty pleased about. 
Next, I'm looking for people who've read Charlotte Woolley's The Lost Girls, so please get in touch. Remember, from page to practice cannot exist without the voice of the reader. See you next time. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons.